Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, breaking now, cloak and daggers in Canberra. The mysterious meetings tonight ahead of a major new national security announcement in the morning. When children under 12 are likely to receive Pfizer, the doctor behind a new trial joins me. The first post-pandemic flights in and out of Australia revealed and a breaking development in the Prince Andrew legal battle will go live to London. But we begin with breaking news of a major national security announcement expected overnight or very early in the morning after senior cabinet ministers and key federal opposition members were called to a top secret meeting of the National Security Committee in Canberra late this afternoon. The details remain confidential but is international in nature. We're told the announcement will be led by the White House. There are early reports it is a major new security strategy in our region that may see a greater US military presence in Australia, including American submarines based here. That's the early reports. Now, this comes as the Prime Minister is due to fly to the US next week. The Defence and Foreign Ministers are already there. They arrived in the past few hours. Victoria Police had a stark warning for people planning to attend a lockdown protest this weekend. Here's the Chief Police Commissioner. You cannot come in. Anyone who's planning to come in, it is an illegal gathering and we'll be doing everything we can to prevent that gathering. This is the biggest game in town for us to stop this occurring. Let's bring in our reporter, Georgia Comensoli in Melbourne. Georgia, good evening to you. A big police presence expected this weekend. Good evening, Michael. This is the biggest police presence that we've seen in over 21 years. Over 2,000 officers will be deployed across the CBD. Their biggest plan is to make sure that there's not the violence that we've seen at protests over the last few weeks. They are shutting down all public transport into the CBD for around a six-hour period. For essential workers, that might be a bit tricky. Basically, you'll need to make your own way into work on Saturday and have some sort of uh, documentation to prove that you're a permitted essential worker. Georgia, you're in Ballarat, regional Victoria tonight. It's a bit chilly there by the look of it, where residents have been sent into a snap week lockdown. Michael, at midnight tonight, Ballarat's heading into their eighth lockdown. It's because they've recorded four new cases, but health authorities are really worried because they've detected COVID in the wastewater dating back to September 8th. They'll hit under the same restrictions as Melbourne, but without a curfew. And to help them contain this outbreak, our regional response will be hitting here tomorrow with more testing sites and more COVID vaccines. All right, Georgia Comensoli in Ballarat there tonight. Thank you. In under an hour's time, residents of Sydney's hotspot LGAs will no longer be subject to a strict curfew. But the Premier was clear today it's not the end of the road yet. We can't move on anything else just now. We need everybody to hold the line, stick to every other rule that's in place. We can all see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we still have work to do. All right, our reporter Tom Sakers live in Sydney tonight. Tom, good evening to you. This was an unexpected freedom granted to the residents of those council areas. 
Yeah, that's right, Michael. Not many people could say they saw this particular announcement coming today, but it has come as a massive and pleasant surprise to the 2.2 million people living inside these 12 areas of concern who, as of midnight tonight, not long now, will be able to legally leave their home after the hours of 9pm and before 5am in the morning. Uh, they've been living under this curfew now for 23 days since August the 23rd. And it was the number one topic of conversation between the Premier and the mayors in the 12 areas of concern when they held talks yesterday. Obviously, today, those mayors are feeling quite vindicated, arguing uh, so hard as they did. Uh, but by the sounds of it, it didn't take the, uh, too much convincing of the Premier, who herself admitted that she was not a huge fan of this particular rule, saying that it reflected many elements of a police st uh, state and uh, heavy surveillance. And perhaps it shouldn't come as a surprise that it also happened on a day when New South Wales hit that major milestone of 80 per cent vaccination of the population, who've now had at least one dose. Uh, and in many cases the vaccination rate is much higher in these 12 areas of concern as it is outside uh, the 12 areas of concern. Uh, so perhaps a small reward for these people who've been doing it particularly tough over the past few months. Now as for what we're likely to see over the next few weeks, we know that Operation, will, Operation Stay at Home will cease at the end of this month. That means uh, a much smaller police presence come October. But we have been told by the Premier to expect a uh, no more surprises until we do get to that 70% double-dose vaccination likely to occur in mid-October. Michael? But some relief tonight. So in about 50, less than 50 minutes now, those curfews lift, which is good news in those areas. Tom Saker in Sydney, thanks for that tonight. Well, checking how Australia is tracking towards our vaccine targets now, in the last 24 hours, more than 280,000 people have been vaccinated across the country, bringing our total so far to more than 23.3 million. In just three days, it's expected 70% of Australians will have received their first dose and they have all had a second dose in 44 days. That should be on October 29. We're on track for 80% of the population to be double-dosed in 61 days on the 15th of November. Qantas has revealed it expects to resume international travel to and from Australia on December 18, but... There are several conditions involved, as you'd expect. Aviation and travel expert James Wilkinson joins me now. Wilco, hello to you. Now, the routes, let's talk about them first. Which ones are Qantas bringing back first? Great to see you, Michael. Yeah, Qantas announcing December 18th when the flights take off. We're looking at London via Singapore at the moment and uh, Los Angeles and Vancouver as well. I think um, one of the most exciting ones about that is what's going to happen straight away afterwards. You've got Tokyo, Fiji, Honolulu all coming online pretty quick. It gives you an indication, Michael, doesn't it, which countries we're going to see in the green lanes fairly soon. Uh, Canada, one of them, uh, Canada just actually released its uh, entry requirements at the moment, and that is just basically two shots of the vaccine yeah. uh, at least 14 days out from travel. So we are seeing a few requirements now of what can happen. Qantas going year-round to Canada, which is really exciting, mm. I think. Uh, our ski season in Whistler could be quite, uh, quite on, on the cards this year. And Air Canada also launching on the 17th of December. Sydney flights again out of Vancouver. So Canada uh, have done a very good job during the pandemic, as we know. And we also know Australia's been watching Canada very closely. So Canada's entry requirements might be fairly similar to Australia's. I'm, I'm thinking also of family reunions here, though, too, Wilco, and that's probably the most important thing before people jetting off for holidays, and there's a lot of Australians and expats living in Canada as well. What does this all mean for family reunions? It, it, does it make it a realistic thing for Christmas time? 
Yeah, I, th I think it is. I think, Michael, the only issue that we know at the moment is what happens for returning Australians. And there's some 40,000 around the world who want to get back home. However, um, planes that are coming in at the moment are only really 10% full because of the caps on the flight. So there are a lot of empty seats. If they, they, get, if they do get the green light to be able to bring Aussies back home, that backlog could get cleared fairly fast. Because one of the issues will be it'd be OK to leave Australia, but it'd be how long... Does it take you to get back home? So, yeah, I think the uh, the market for visiting friends and relatives is going to be huge over December and January, right through those school holidays. Well, that's what and I'm wondering. And the airlines are expecting the, it to drop off a bit in February. Yeah, but the cap is the key here, isn't it? I mean, I, I'd mm, imagine... That is and, the key. I mean, Qantas seemed like they're jumping the gun here before the government started talking publicly about the cap again. I'd imagine other international airlines want to know what's happening there as well. It's one thing for us to be flying Australians out, but isn't the priority to bring a lot of them home, those 40,000 that you mentioned? Yeah, it is a huge priority, uh, Michael. We know that Singapore Airlines, we're just today talking about some of their flights have got 25 people on them coming in, mm. and that's 10% of what these triple triple sevens and Dreamliners and A350s can handle. So um, the number one priority will be the cap, but maybe we might see Aussies coming home before leisure travel can, uh, mm. starts up again. Maybe that's something the government's thinking about. But I think it is going to annoy a lot of people around the world who do want to come home that people can go overseas for a holiday before they're allowed to come back into Australia, quarantine, even quarantine-free. Well, it goes to their line that they're being treated like refugees, so it's a major problem that the government's still yet to properly address. Now, you've also been speaking with other international airlines about Australian travel. Um, some have more confidence about returning than others. What can you tell us? Yeah, some are quite confident. We know Air Canada, we mentioned them before, uh, Michael. They're going to be coming back from December 17 with a 777. We also know that airlines like Singapore Airlines, while they did flag that there are issues at the moment with caps not returning Aussies, they've got planes ready to go. They're flying double daily into Sydney, for example. So we know they're going to be uh, flying. Uh, they're going to put schedules on pretty quickly. We know Qatar Airways have been flying right throughout the pandemic to Australia. Uh, there's a FIFA World Cup next year, Michael, as we know, in Qatar. Mm. They're very keen to see how they can um, get flights happening very soon. Don't forget, they're a major transit port, as we know, through into Europe. So a lot of those countries in Europe will be on that green list, Michael, though, as well. We look at sort of the UK, but also think about countries like France, Italy, Switzerland, which yeah. will be on a list with Australia very soon. So uh, they're all they're going to be happening. And also America, there's a lot of flights. Delta are daily at the moment. United are double daily out of at California. So California, we're expecting to be huge, given there's already four airlines flying at the moment between California and Australia. Yeah. Look, sounds to me like the getting out bit might become easier. The getting back in, still the problem. So we need to work on that. Uh, really interesting, yeah. though. If things are moving. There's no doubt about that. James Wilkinson, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Children as young as five could be receiving a COVID vaccine as early as November in America. Pfizer's going to hand over key clinical data to the US regulator for emergency use approval within weeks, paving the way for other nations like Australia to do the same. Professor Yvonne Maldonado is part of the trial at Stanford University. She joins me from California. Uh, Professor, hello to you. This study is certainly picking up pace. What's the early data showing you? We have had a very good experience with the trial here. The families and the children are doing quite well. We're not seeing any major concerns about the safety of the vaccine in the kids. And we aren't seeing any of the um, actual immunity data. So the antibody data, that's being collected right now by the company. But that will be presented to the FDA. And when the FDA gets it, I'm sure we'll see it as well. If all goes to plan, what happens from here? When could we see children 11 and under being immunised, do you think? If the vaccine is, is sent in uh, to the FDA by October, the FDA would immediately begin to review the data. And they have said that they feel comfortable 
uh, giving uh, some kind of authorization, as, as you said, if all goes well, within weeks, not months. So we are hopeful that we could have a vaccine EUA for five to 11 year olds sometime before the end of the calendar year, maybe even sometime in, for example, November, which depends on how long it would take the FDA to review the data. And once that is reviewed, then the CDC would have to give uh, more clinical guidance like uh, dosing or age groups or uh, prioritization of doses to certain groups, for example. And once CDC gives their final recommendations, then um, uh, the vaccines could be given to children um, in the 5 to 11 age group. We are not quite that uh, complete yet with the under five-year-olds. So those studies are still ongoing. So it's hoped that we would have a vaccine for five to 11-year-olds in the United States by the end of this year and for the under five-year-olds next year. Schools are set to return in lockdown parts of Australia in a matter of weeks. Could you help us understand how that should look and what rules need to be in place? The thing that, uh, say, a large school district like Los Angeles is doing, which has over... um, three quarters of a million children in one district, one large uh, area with thousands of teachers is they're doing uh, high levels of masking and distancing of three feet, uh, making sure that as many people as possible, 12 and older are vaccinated and really cleaning and ventilation of the schools. That's what it will take to keep outbreaks from happening. The other thing that some school districts are doing if they have the resources is testing people, students and teachers on a regular basis. But that is a fairly high resource um, intensive uh, intervention. Well, masks have become a controversial issue in schools in the US, even banned in some states. Can you understand that? And why do some parents or politicians oppose that? All I can say is that the, there are data to support the use of masks. And I think You know, I I can't claim to understand what people are doing around masks, except to say that my understanding is that people are worried about freedoms, uh, ability to make decisions on their own, and that masking, mandating masking could lead to other mandates that people might be concerned about. Now, I find that very um, ironic, given that there have been other mandates to prevent people from exercising other freedoms, which I don't want to go into, but somehow that particular freedom to not wear a mask has been selected as one that is symbolic. But the, the data is very clear that masks work. Skeptics say masks can cause long-term psychological damage in children, but Professor, kids are adaptable. Could they be easily introduced in schools here too? Absolutely. And frankly, um, I am, uh, remember, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist, but my colleagues who are developmental pediatricians and specialists say there are no uh, studies that demonstrate that masks will affect development or uh, neurological um, behavior or outcomes. And so I think for the vast majority of children over two years of age, masks could be used We've opened Pfizer eligibility to 12 to 15-year-olds. How much of a difference are vaccinations making in that age group over there? I can say that it's a tale of two pandemics. And in the U.S., what we're saying is this is a pandemic in the U.S. that's being driven by the unvaccinated. California has a very high vaccination rate, 
Overall in the U.S., about 50% of children over 12 are vaccinated. In the San Francisco Bay Area, that number is closer to 60 to 80%. So, in, so uh, subsequently, what we're seeing here are hospitalized children, more than we expected to see this far into the pandemic, but we're not seeing high, high numbers of children, but they are being hospitalized. They are being put on ventilators in some cases um, and are, can be quite sick. Not all of them, but some. By contrast, in my, uh, my colleagues who live in states where there are high uh, numbers of children being hospitalized, those are states with low vaccination rates overall and low vaccination rates in 12 to 18 year old children. And they're seeing um, their intensive care units for children are overwhelmed and extremely busy. Um, and uh, they are really having a very hard time uh, dealing with this wave of the pandemic this far in to the pandemic when we thought things would start to settle down. Okay, Professor Yvonne Maldonado in California, thank you. Well, Broadway is back tonight in its biggest way yet. The curtains rising on three of the Big Apple's musical institutions after a sudden and very long shutdown. Our network finance editor, Gemma Acton, here to have a talk about this. Gemma, good evening to you. Hi, Mike. Not only talking about jobs back, but it's big tourism money flowing again too. Yes, well, let's just pause on jobs for a sec because it's really important. Almost 100,000 people are employed in some capacity by Broadway. And that is to support what is an enormous operation. Nearly 15 million people went to a Broadway show in 2019 before the pandemic. And those shows and musicals brought in around two and a half billion Australian dollars. And those three you mentioned, the three most uh, popular at the moment on Broadway, which are Wicked, Hamilton, The Lion King, in a regular week bring in nearly 1.5 million Australian dollars yeah. between them. So it is big business. Tourism, it's a little trickier. Certainly tourists love Broadway. For many people, it's a huge part of their itinerary when they visit the Big Apple. But it hasn't come back uh, anything like what you'd expect uh, at the moment. Last year, New York lost around two-thirds of its tourist numbers. Domestic tourist, tourism isn't back yet, and international certainly isn't. So it's expected that the majority of patrons at the theatres for the time being, will be locals. Yeah. That's a very large enterprise business right in the middle of Manhattan there. So who else benefits from Broadway? Right? Yeah, you're right. So the, the squares surrounding Times Square, the blocks around there, are known as the Theatre District, uh, all sorts of restaurants and bars. For many of them, it wasn't even worth opening, even when they could, when Broadway wasn't back. The vast majority of their patrons being people attending pre or post dinners and drinks uh, for the shows. Uh, they're thrilled that it's back, and you'll often see them staggering their opening to match uh, the, the shows that have been shown at yeah. the moment. Because, yes, some shows are back, but certainly not all shows uh, are back at this point. I guess we are still quite a way off seeing anything like this happening uh, in, in the two lockdown states at the moment, New South Wales and Victoria, where, where equally, on a smaller scale, uh, that industry of theatre and live entertainment is, is profitable and means a lot of jobs. Very much so. Also important from a, from a cultural perspective. So in New South Wales, uh, when we get to 70% double vaccinated rate, uh, theatres will reopen to either 75% fixed seater capacity or one person per every four square metres. Victoria will have more details this weekend. But what we know from what's happening in New York is that all audiences, all cast, all crew must show proof of vaccination right. to be a part of this experience. All audiences must be masked. The only way you can get out of this is if you're under 12 years old and you can show that you've had a test recently. Yeah. And we should very much expect to see uh, the same sort of rules here. It's, it's already so been it's another example, said clearly. It? Unless you're vaccinated, you're not going to get to go to it. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Jim. Interesting. Thank you Thanks, for that. Thanks, Michael.
Former Attorney General Christian Porter may be forced to reveal the identity of a secret benefactor who helped fund his defamation action against the ABC. The case centred around reports the ABC published about historical rape allegations Porter denies. The Prime Minister is now investigating whether the failure to declare the donor breaches ministerial standards. An almost three-decade-long stint on the run is over tonight for a prison escapee in New South Wales. Darko Desic cut his way out of Grafton Jail in 1992. The now 64-year-old had been doing cash-in-hand jobs and sleeping rough on Sydney's northern beaches, handing himself into police when work dried up due to COVID. The TikTok comedian who gained a name for himself by revealing COVID cases before officials in New South Wales is tonight in a hospital with the virus. John Bernard Caruse also addressed the masses at an anti-lockdown rally in Sydney. The 24-year-old's now being treated by doctors for COVID, along with his father. A woman's been rescued after falling 100 metres down a cliff face in Toowoomba. Her family raised the alarm after she didn't return from her walk yesterday afternoon. It took emergency crews seven hours to carry her to safety. The woman's now recovering in hospital with leg and spinal injuries. You might remember this story. A third suspect has faced court charged over the theft of a big bird costume from a circus in Adelaide. 20-year-old Amelia Hurd is charged with dishonestly dealing with property. The $160,000 costume is, uh, was rather stolen back in April. The Queensland family battling to bring their daughter home to start urgent cancer treatment have finally been reunited. Here's Marianne Bedwell and her father reflecting on their emotional reunion. Overwhelmed, happy relieved. Yeah, I can't believe it was only Monday that I was feeling very worried. Um, but then all of a sudden I was packing last night and um, getting very excited. Didn't sleep all that much, but um, still feel pretty good. And yeah, it, it's been a whirlwind. It's just amazing. It was so emotional. It was, I was elated, you know, but I was also extremely nervous. Isn't that bizarre? And, I, and look, you know, Huge thanks to all the people that made that so smooth. Well, let's go to Georgie Chumley, who's live in Brisbane tonight. Wonderful resolution here, Georgie. A bit of a battle ahead, but we followed the story last night. Just talk us through what happened today. Good evening, Michael. Well, as they said, it was a beautiful emotional scene at the airport, a little bit different to what you would usually see when a father and daughter see each other for the first time in a long time. Marianne was wheeled off the uh, aeroplane and onto Queensland soil. She was able to wave at her dad from a distance, but they, of course, weren't able to hug or kiss because it's straight into quarantine for her. She's a 34-year-old woman who has cancer. She's undergone two rounds of chemotherapy unsuccessfully, and the therapy that she needs here in Brisbane Brisbane is the only kind that is likely to extend her life. That's what her doctor had said in letters and emails to Queensland Health. But after eight days, they still hadn't responded to her exemption. So the family went to extreme lengths. They came and spoke to us at Seven News and 30 minutes after their story went to air, she got the call and she was granted the exemption. So she's now allowed to go home to the family property, isolate on a little cabin uh, there until she's completed her quarantine and she can go and get this life-extending treatment. Yeah, which is crucial at this stage, that treatment. Now, Georgie, Marianne's family, they really hope that her case is going to spark a change in that, as you mentioned, the exemption system. 
That's right. They don't want other families to have to go through what they've gone through. They want the process to be more transparent. We know that there are more than 3,000 people who are currently applied to get a Queensland health exemption and are still waiting for any correspondence back. They're obviously incredibly happy to have Marianne home and for her to have that treatment, but they're painfully aware that there are so many others like her who are in the same position. We really wish her all the best with that treatment too. Georgie Chumley in Brisbane. Thank you. Well, there are images that are difficult to stomach. Environmental activists tonight outraged over the slaughter of more than 1,400 dolphins in the Faroe Islands. It is a tradition dating back 400 years. The animals, as you can see there, rounded up and herded into shallow waters to be killed for their meat and blubber for locals. And two rival factions of the Taliban reportedly brawled at Afghanistan's presidential palace just days after seizing power. The Taliban denied the reports that a major row broke out over how power would be divided in the new cabinet. There's been a breaking development tonight in Prince Andrew's legal case. Let's cross live now to London where our Europe correspondent Sarah Greenolch is standing by. Sarah, hello to you. A few changes in the last few hours. What do we know? Michael, good evening. Uh, there has been in the past hour or so confirmation from the UK High Court that it will be intervening, getting involved in this case and that one way or another Prince Andrew will be getting served with these all-important legal documents that he has been avoiding. So they say after receiving information from Virginia Dufresne's legal team uh, in a statement, the High Court has accepted the request for service under the Hague Service Convention. The legal process has not yet been served, but the High Court will now take steps to serve under the convention unless service is arranged by agreement between the parties. Of course, uh, this was one of the key arguments that Prince Andrew's Hollywood lawyer made in that New York court the other day, yeah. saying that the serving of the papers through a police officer at the Windsor Mansion uh, was invalid, that process. So basically just trying to delay this uh, a little further. Prince Andrew is still hiding out, if you will, at Balmoral with the Queen. Uh, he has always denied these allegations, Michael. Uh, Virginia Dufresne accusing him of sexually assaulting her on three occasions when she was 17. But this is pretty significant. So yeah. one way or another, he will now be getting served and uh, this will be continuing. All right, Sarah Greenwich in London. Thanks for that update tonight. Broadway is back tonight in its biggest way yet. The curtain's rising on three of the Big Apple's musical institutions after a sudden and a long shutdown. Hamilton, The Lion King and Wicked are the latest to have audiences back in the theatre. And more shows are about to follow, including Phantom of the Opera. We're very lucky to have a key performer, Marie Johnson, joining us in New York City tonight. Marie, thank you so much for joining the latest. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. And now look, after the, the, the years that you've been in this wonderful industry of yours, how difficult have the past 18 months been? Oh, uh, I think there's uh, a general consens consensus that none of us have ever experienced this before. So uh, it's new, it was scary, it's, it's, you know, the whole gamut of the full range of emotions, you know, as yeah. you all know now in Australia what it's like. Absolutely. Now, I mean, you have lived and breathed theatre. You must have missed that, that beautiful adrenaline, the rush of getting up there and performing in the crowd and... And, and being in front of that audience that, that, that feeds you so much as well. Yes, exactly. And it's such a, you know, community experience. So there's such an exchange of emotions in a live performance. So to not have that for 18 months and to be doing it on screens and things like that, uh, you know, this is just such a welcome relief. The audiences are vaccinated. All of you on stage, yep. behind, st off stage, everyone's vaccinated. There's checks galore. It's, it's, we saw some of the vision tonight in our evening news around Australia of just how well it seems to be working. 
Yeah, the protocols are amazing. Yeah, they mm. really are. And some of those protocols were taken from Australia yeah. because earlier on you were open and theatre was alive and happening yeah. while we were shut down. So yeah. it's been a, a nice exchange of information and, and protocols during all this. Now, I understand uh, Phantom, it returns on October 22, getting back into the character of, uh, <laughs> of Madame Giry after so long. How, how is that? How's that transformation to, to get back into character? You know, that's really exciting because um, with Phantom, it was running for so long, you know, over 30 years. So we all came in at different times during the rehearsal process and now we all come together as a cast and we get to start from scratch in a rehearsal room, bare bones, and then put it back on stage. So there's a wonderful bonding experience with that. So mm. I'm really looking forward to bonding with my fellow phantom family, as we yeah. call them. Yeah. Now, that's, that's uh, in about a month or so, but am I right in saying you do have a little performance this evening, your first live audience in a while? I do. It's yeah. my first time tonight with Nelson Aspen. Oh, great. Very... Yeah. <laughs> yes, we're doing... Uh, he's doing his show at uh, Green Room 42 and I'm his guest star and we're doing a couple of numbers together. I wish I could say, please come along. <laughs> it's a long one. <laughs> I think we wish we could get there, yeah. Um, time. Oh, it's fantastic. Well, look, I mean, that Broadway and, and the various, the whole industry around Broadway, it is, it is in many ways the beating heart of New York City and it's coming back and it's great to see and uh, fantastic for you as well and all of your phantom family as well. Marie, lovely talking to you from New York. Lovely. Thank you. Welcome back. Students in lockdown states will soon be preparing to return to class, but tonight some teachers want mandatory vaccines for not only staff, but every eligible child before the school bell rings. Let's get more reaction from our panellists, Dee Madigan and Carolyn Overington. Great to see you both again. Thanks for joining me this week. Now, Carolyn, I'll ask you first, can we go a step too far in keeping our kids safe or not? Yes, because the vaccine is for people who are over the age of 12 at the moment, so you can't possibly ask for every child to be vaccinated. That isn't the standard anywhere around the world. And, in fact, vaccines have not been tested on very young children. And what this vaccine is very similar to a flu vaccine, which most adults have, because the flu is a tougher disease for adults than it is for children. So we don't go around insisting that all children have the flu vaccine. We do say they should have measles, mumps, rubella, meningococcal, those kinds of things, which are likely to be very serious in children. But this just seems like another um, crazy idea that is designed in a way to not get us back out of lockdown, which is what the vast majority of the population desperately wants. Dee, would you be fine if the principal said your kids had to be mandatory vaccinated or don't come back? Um, I'm deeply uncomfortable at the government insisting people put things in their body. However, I don't think me being deeply uncomfortable about it is a good enough reason not mm. to happen. A lot of those, not a lot of those teachers, but there are teachers who can't get vaccinated for whatever reason. Now, they're at risk at those schools. And we're not talking primary school. We are talking sort of the over 12s. Um, and so as much as it makes me uncomfortable, I think if it does get us out of lockdown and yeah. does get, you know, everything happening... I'm happy to be uncomfortable and still go ahead with it. Dee, I think there's there's a few more hurdles before these schools do get back smoothly. I don't think it's going to be as easy as perhaps the state governments, in particularly New South Wales, are suggesting. I'm getting direct mail from some teachers in some schools saying, look, we don't want to be forced into vaccinations and there's going to be a problem with it. Am I going to lose my position, my permanency, my role on the staff? Do you... Uh, 
Do you support that? Do you understand their position or are they being selfish? I do understand their position. I think it is different for aged care workers where you are putting people at risk. But as Caroline pointed out, children don't tend to have, you know, bad outcomes necessarily from COVID. I wish those teachers did get vaccinated. Mm. I wish they want to get vaccinated. I am uncomfortable with mandatory vaccination unless you are putting other people at risk of, of like of a serious illness. Slowly, because of those vaccination rates, restrictions are easing in Sydney particularly. No more curfews from tonight in, the, in those, those hot zones and picnics are going to be allowed, uh, gatherings of adults of five plus kids. So, and Melbourne is going to get the roadmap on Sunday, which is exciting as well. D, but 12 deaths in New South Wales today. Um, are we backing out of lockdown a little too quickly? Do we have to be careful or are we just doing the right thing? We've got to move on. We are um, we are being careful, but it's still, like, it makes no sense. I get so frustrated. I'm in the Burwood LGA. Yes, curfews got lifted. Whoop-de-frickin'-do. Yeah. We've had no more than seven cases a day for three months. I got yeah. why Burwood got put in there in the first place because we're surrounded by Canterbury, Bankstown, whatever. No more than seven a day for three months, and we're still under this harsh lockdown. And you look over at Randwick and Bondi, and they're not, and I just, it is... I'm starting to get really, really cross at the double standards that seem to live in Sydney. You know, we need to make decisions for the whole city, I think, because this is just, it makes no sense at all. Is it time more measures are eased, not just a couple of curfews here and there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was a harrowing story today, wasn't there, about a family who were trying to say goodbye to their father who had died in Sydney and they didn't want to breach the lockdown rules, so they went to the cemetery in their cars and the police arrived and told them they had to move on. You're at, not, you're at risk to nobody in your car. You're at risk to the police officers if they drag you out of the car and arrest you, which was what happened. And the, the touching way that they responded with a really beautiful eulogy and tribute to their father, that they were just trying to farewell. As you say, Dee, in, it, the, 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 the lockdown restrictions in some suburbs have gone well beyond what is reasonable. Yeah. It's unreasonable for funerals. It's unreasonable in schools. It's unreasonable for weddings. It's unreasonable for, for travel for a whole range of restrictions have to now be lifted. And far too many double standards as well. Carolyn, you mentioned the Qantas flights and there's been a huge reaction to them uh, already and it's it's showing that optimism, that will to want to get out of the restrictions. Locking in international flights from mid-December, uh, scheduling services from Sydney and Melbourne to London. So I guess if you're in some other states, you've got to get there first and then worry about whether you can get back across your own domestic border <laughs> or not. But that's a different problem. Uh, Dee, I think there's still a few issues here. The cap, uh, returning home, uh, is it too good to be true so far to be thinking about the borders, international borders opening up? It may be too good to be true, but that didn't stop me Googling like ah. mad. And I did. I, so I optimistically booked Queensland for the end of December. And I did. I saw that and I thought, oh, Fiji sounds nice. And then I thought, oh, the idea of sort of if, if the lockdown happens again, of sort of dealing with overseas countries in terms of getting refunds and that just felt like a little bit too hard for me. I'm yeah. sure some people will. The cash up people where it doesn't really matter for me, I'm not risking you know, the, a holiday for the first time in a couple of years that, you know, all turning to dust and not being able to get refunds. Karen, so I'll, I'll wait. Karen, I'd love to know where you might be headed first, but, but before I do that, um, this is about not just Australians getting out and going overseas. Surely this is also about a lot of stranded Australians, some 40,000 is best guess, getting back in. The caps still haven't been addressed in that regard. So if these flights are going out, can they bring those people back? And isn't it about family reunions? 
It is, and my heart is bursting with joy for people who are going to be able to see their children again. I have a number of friends who have adult children living in New York and London who haven't seen them for two years, and they are so excited. It's palpable excitement out there. But also locally, you're quite right. Again, I have some friends who have children who go to the university in Canberra, which is a popular option for people, and they haven't been able to see their children really now for months, and it's really hard. So that, that to me, is the most exciting development today, the idea that you might be able to be back in the arms of your loved one. We won't be longing anymore we'll be holding and that and that's just terrific i haven't made any plans myself for, for the same reasons that d has yeah. said i'm anxious and cautious about what will actually happen but i'm thrilled for people who have a, yeah. a date in the diary now for a, for a isn't couple. it funny though when you've spent the last three months homeschooling your children the, the idea of not seeing your children for a while also <laughs> kind of nice <laughs> yeah. i've had that conversation this week as well actually d madigan carolyn overington thank you thank you now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets. Thanks, Michael. Growth concerns reared their head again today with weak Chinese economic data, adding to fears that the global economy might be running out of puff. Our local markets finished only mildly lower, while Hong Kong shares once again fell hard. Now, despite that gloom, Wall Street is pointing to a positive open. That's after US markets fell on weaker-than-expected consumer price inflation numbers last night. And we had barely seen the back of Hurricane Ida before Hurricane Nicholas assaulted the Gulf of Mexico yesterday. Its impact is so far limited, but still another hurdle to the recovery of oil supply. And after slipping last night, the Aussie dollar is clawing its way higher again now. Michael. Thank you for your company this evening from the team here at 7 News. That is the latest. I'm Michael Usher. Thanks for your company. Have a good night.